Today's podcast is brought to you by the Prime original series, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Winner of two Golden Globes, including Best TV Comedy Series and Best Actress in a TV Comedy Series for Rachel Brosnahan's performance as a housewife-turned-comedian, Midge Maisel. Consider it marvelous in all categories. Hello and welcome to Chasing Emmy, your favorite home for Emmy trivia, nostalgia, and prospects. I am Henry Goldblatt, Editor-in-Chief of Entertainment Weekly, and I'm joined with two of my friends and colleagues, Lynette Rice. Hello. I'm so happy to be back. And Kristen Baldwin, you are not canceled either. I too am happy to be back. We're really excited today because we're going to be taking on the Outstanding Supporting Actress in the Drama category today, and we've got a really special guest in the form of Constance Zimmer, who is on Unreal. She plays Quinn and is just terrific on that. We'll be talking to her later in the show. First, this is the TV podcast. I want to put Lynette and Kristen on the spot a bit and find out what you've been watching lately. What's on your viewing schedule as of late? Well, a lot, because it's my job, and when I get home... To relax, I watch old episodes of Brooklyn Nine-Nine because I love it so much. Uh, But recently for work, I've been watching the second season of 13 Reasons Why, uh, which is the Netflix series that was quite controversial. It's about a teenage girl who commits suicide, and then she leaves a bunch of tapes behind telling people why she did it. And season two will drop next week. It's complicated and... uh, compelling and there's some issues but i'm i'm seeing nine episodes and i'm excited to see the rest what is that show like to binge all at once it must be really really crazy are you like popping prozac afterwards (laughs) you know when i had to watch uh, handmaid's tale for uh for a review i watched like three episodes in a row and that i really needed like a sanity break with 13 reasons why there's enough levity in it that you can watch a couple episodes without really you know feeling insane after watching seven one day i did need to go take a walk (laughs) fair enough um lynette what are you watching lately what have you been binging I'm going to sound so old school. Uh, I find it most relaxing if I go back and watch old West Wing. And so I I go between that and old episodes of Cheers. Uh, Some of the Cheers binging comes from the fact that there's not a lot of comedies entertaining me these days. And you go back and you watch that show, and it's amazing how well all the comedy holds up. And, and, And when Woody Harrelson joined, too, I mean, the show just took a dif- different direction it's just so much fun um, i love i love it i just i love it where can people find cheers if they want to binge it you can find uh, both cheers and the west wing on the wonderful netflix it's it's pretty great and of course the andy griffith show you can find that there as well which i occasionally do right before i go to bed because nothing you know puts me to a nice sweet lull than andy griffith yeah <laughs> this podcast is being brought to you by geritol <laughs> Stop! And Metamucil. All right, I have been watching something. Um, it's a show that I love, and they've recut it in a different way, and I want to tell people about it. I'm watching Arrested Development. It's called Arrested Development Fatal Consequences, and it's the fourth season of Arrested Development. And what the creator, Mitch Hurwitz, did was take the original fourth season, which was div- divvied up in our basically almost hour-long episodes by character, and he cut them so that they were chronological. There's a whole bunch of new narration by Ron Howard. It runs like a different show. It's, it's a very ambitious 
ambitious project and streaming on Netflix now. It just came out last week. It's really interesting. And for those of you who are huge Arrested Development fans, I would highly recommend it. Our critic, Darren Franich, who is our co-critic with Kristen Baldwin, didn't didn't love it. And I can see if you're not an avid fan of the show, how you'd be like, wow, this is really dense and difficult to get through. But for folks like myself who love it, it's like an extra treat. It's like dessert Arrested Development as you're waiting for the fifth season. So Kristen, um, are you an Arrested Development fan? Are you excited about the new season? Would you go back and watch the previous season? I am an Arrested Development fan. I'm not as hardcore as some fans. Uh, I'm not sure if I will watch all of the remixed, re-edited season four. I will probably watch a couple just to remember where things left off. I am excited for the new season. I do wish, you know, that they were able to get the actors together more that like part of the problem with season four was that the actors all had such busy schedules that they really didn't have very many scenes together and that's kind of why they did the chrono or the episode character by character episodes here's hoping that season five uh they were able to work that out and get because you really want to see the Bluth family together that's what makes the show great the scuttlebutt on season five is that they were able to get the actors together hopefully your wish is going to be fulfilled what's actually killed me about season four and it came out so long ago that it's worth even reminding diehard fans about it is one there's a whole subplot about building a wall between the U.S. and Mexico in order to keep out immigrants like just full-on what we're going on in the world right now and secondly there's a whole subplot where Jeffrey Tambor's character George Bluth starts coming out as transgender, which was long before transparent. So how they're going to write their way out of those two situations, I have no idea. Oh, and the whole situation with now Jeffrey Tambor, you know, uh, still being on Arrested Development, but of course, he was fired from transparent due to allegations of misconduct. And that's all uncomfortable. The whole thing's uncomfortable, Henry. Well, the show's whole premise is is discomfort. So like, I think I'm just going to roll with it, Kristen. It's, I mean, I think that's the only thing you can do. Just roll with the awkwardness. Exactly. Um, but we're here to talk about the Emmy Awards. And as I mentioned, we're going to be talking about outstanding supporting actress in a drama. And Lynette, I was wondering if you could take us through some previous winners to give us context about this category. Previous winners. So last year, there was Ann Dowd, who played Aunt Lydia for The Handmaid's Tale. Uh, in 2016, it was Maggie Smith for Downton Abbey. 2015, it was Uzo Aduba as Crazy Eyes in Orange is the New Black. And for 2014 and 2013, it was the wonderful Anna Gunn for Breaking Bad. She played Skylar. Does anything stand out to you in these categories? What stands out to me immediately is that there's not a woman from a broadcast network who's won in a very long time. It's very sad. It, it, it's, a, it's kind of a bummer. These are definitely all character actors. Nothing particularly stands out. It, if anything, it just makes me feel sad that Breaking Bad's not around. What was interesting to me is that Archie Punjabi was the last broadcast actor to win. She won for The Good Wife playing the amazing Kalinda Sharma in 2010. And since then, it's all been cable and streaming. And that was the first season, remember that, when she won? And that was such a huge deal for them. She won before the star won, Juliana. I remember being backstage when she came back, and she was shell-shocked that she won. She couldn't believe it. It, it was cool. I love it when it plays out that way. Yeah, she, she, it was a big, big moment for her. Kristen, are there any trends in this category that you've seen throughout the years? So some of the most awarded actresses in this category uh, include Nancy Marchand, uh, who won four times for playing Margaret on Lou Grant. Uh, she never uh, won for playing Livia on The Sopranos, which is a crime. And Ellen Corby, who won three times for playing Esther on The Waltons. And so certainly 
when the Academy finds a person they like in this category, they keep giving her the award. Um, it's <laughs> That's true. Again, this podcast is being brought to you by Metamucil. And what's interesting about Nancy Marchand is she actually got a posthumous award for playing Lydia on The Sopranos. And I remember that year, everyone thought she was going to win because she was a sentimental favorite. Um, and she unfortunately didn't win the award that year. And so well, I started digging into some of the winners who've won two times in this category. And it turns out nine women have won two times in this category. I won't go through all of them, but some of the notable ones, Anna Gunn, who we mentioned for Breaking Bad, Allison Janney won twice for West Wing, Tyne Daly won for a show called Christy, which I don't remember. I think it was a short-lived drama on CBS. And then she won as Maxine, um, playing Maxine on Judging Amy opposite Amy Brenneman. I think this is definitely an example of, and you see this too with the Movie Academy, but there, this is definitely an example. There are there are favorites with the Academy and there's only certain actors that fall in this. I know Allison Janney is definitely one of them. You know, she continues to get nominations uh, for mom. She's won for that. Uh, and it, obviously it's the same with Tyne Daly. I think, you know, Maggie Smith was another one too. They just hone in on this is our favorite. We're sticking with her. And Maggie Smith was a favorite, even though she didn't show up for the ceremony the last time she got an award. The other one who's a favorite in this category is Christine Baranski. We're going to be talking to her later on in the podcast series because she's in a different category this year. But she was got nominated six times for The Good Wife and never won, which is like a crime to me. Yes, definitely. She did. I think the last time she won was when she did um, Sybil. I think that was the first time that she won. Dr. Channing was nominated a bunch of times in this category. Christina Hendricks. Like there's many people who are nominated again and again, but not necessarily winning. What's interesting about Allison Janney, too, is that she won twice in supporting and then she later switched to lead for West Wing and she won there as well. So who who can say? Hopefully the news will be good for uh, Christine Bransky as well. What's interesting about Allison Janney is, uh, Christian, you've mentioned she's won in both drama categories, supporting and lead, and she's won an Oscar. I think we need to get her a Grammy. That's a swagger, man. That's total swagger. Yeah, we need to get her spoken word Grammy. And then I think a Tony can't be far away. Like, she's an EGOT winner in this lifetime for sure. All right, so take us through some of last year's nominees, Kristen. So uh, last year's nominees included Uzo Aduba uh, as Suzanne on Orange is the New Black, Millie Bobby Brown, 11 on Stranger Things, Anne Dowd, Aunt Lydia on The Handmaid's Tale, Chrissy Metz as Kate on This Is Us, Tandy Newton as Maeve on Westworld, and Samira Wiley as Moira on The Handmaid's Tale. And, uh, you know, last year's nominees were notable because the entire category turned over from 2016. 2016, it was Amelia Clark, Maggie Smith again, Lena Headey, Maura Tierney, Maisie Williams, and Constance Simmer. So this is a category that they certainly have favorites, but then obviously there was some change uh, uh, last year. And who, it's interesting to see if there will be a lot of turnover this year, too. Um, well, I think there was a lot of change last year because none of the Game of Thrones women were eligible. I'll see that in our next segment when we're talking about who's going to be nominated this year. I imagine you're going to see this category flooded with Game of Thrones again. But Game of Thrones didn't have a season last year, so that's, that's why it wasn't eligible. All right, I want to go off on a little tangent for a second. There was a lot of chatter about Millie Bobby Brown last year because she was 13 years old when she was nominated. Everyone just adores her on the show and thought she was great. So I did a little research, and it turned out the youngest Emmy winner ever was a woman named Roxana Zal, who was 14 years old and won for the TV movie called Something About Amelia. Lynette, do you remember this TV movie at all? Did that have something to do with like an eating disorder? We're going with incest. Oh, yeah. It had Ted Danson, right? Ted Danson and Glenn Close. And according to the Nielsen ratings, it was the most watched TV show for the week of January 9th through 15th in 1984. And Zal got the Emmy, as I mentioned, for Outstanding Actress in a Limited Series. And that record stands. She's still the youngest winner of the Emmys at 14 years old. 
Krista, we're, we're going to talk about this some more. Like, do you think Millie Bobby Brown deserves to be the youngest recipient of an Emmy ever as you look back over sort of child actors? It's interesting that none of the Modern Family kids have ever won. I'm not sure off the top of my head if they've been nominated, but I feel like those are some really great child actors. Yes, right now, some of them are in their awkward stages, but, uh, you know, they've always been really funny. Uh, I know that's comedy, but I'm just thinking about uh, child actors in general on TV. I think Millie Bobby Brown gave a great performance both in season one and season two. I do wonder if uh, a, a little bit, there's a little bit of backlash of season two, the 11 episode where she kind of goes out of town and it's her quote unquote punk episode. And a lot of people didn't like it. I thought it was fine. Everybody chill out. Um, I think she will get a nomination simply because she does carry a lot of weight on that show. I think she certainly deserves another nomination. I don't know. Having not seen something about Amelia, uh, I'm not sure that she uh, deserves to steal the record away from Roxana Zal, um, who I'm sure gave a heart-wrenching performance. So I think we'd need to table this discussion until we're all able to have a group viewing of something about Amelia. I feel like she sh- she should have won in the first season because that was by far the best she carried that show. I think that's obviously far more than what a young actor could do for a TV movie. Uh, I really thought that she would win that I, I, that year. I, I don't know if she would win after the second season because some of that buzz, that sheen is off. Um, I definitely think she'll get the nomination again. And is she still the youngest? Well, no. Well, she would be. I guess she'd be tied for the youngest now. Um, all right, Lynette. Before we leave our first segment, what are who are some of the snubs in this category that still hurt? I have a couple that are very recent. Uh, this is us. Uh, was uh, a tough one for all these actors on the, obviously what to submit to, and you know they a lot of them. You know, obviously the Chrissy Mess went for the. Um, supporting she didn't win I mean that was a nomination that everyone expected and was deserved what was very sad is the woman who plays her mom Mandy Moore was completely overlooked uh, and so the only love love for the show ultimately went to the very deserving Sterling K Brown uh, I felt like Mandy deserved a nomination I mean don't you think Henry I think so I wonder if she'd be nominated in the lead category though that's a tough this is the, the fault because it's such an ensemble I feel like this makes it so tough to figure out too another one is Winona Ryder from Stranger Things I was blown away that she didn't get anything after the first season and she was just phenomenal uh you know and, and keep in mind too she's been nominated for two Oscars in the past which is pretty good Lena Hetty, she's been nominated three times but has never won Maisie Williams from Game of Thrones also nominated once never won and I also have to uh do a correction here Henry uh when I was talking about the great Michael Imperioli last um uh, podcast. He was nominated several times, but he actually won once in 2004, so I no longer feel sorry for him. Fair enough. Well, up next, we're going to be talking about our dream nominees for this year, so stay tuned. Today's podcast is brought to you by the show that IndieWire calls a feminist rallying cry. It's The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, the prime original series. It's won two Golden Globes and two Critics' Choice Awards. Kristen, what did you think of the show? I am obsessed. I watched the whole thing. Not only is it funny and it filled with great performances, it also has the most beautiful costumes on TV. You could just watch it with the sound off and everything is so pretty, but it's also really funny and you love the characters and I can't wait for season two. Kristen, I got to be honest, I was having a drink at a bar in New York City um, last year and I saw these gorgeous like 1950s cars out the window while I was having a drink with a friend and I like, it was one of those situations where I wanted to lick the window because the car looked so delicious. I know that's sort of weird. At any rate, um, I was like, I asked the bartender what's going on and he's like, oh, they're filming a show. I went outside to see what show it was and it was The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. 
it's so incredibly uh, well produced and st the style is amazing and they really do recreate uh, old tiny New York uh, and I just absolutely loved looking at it and just got really hooked on the characters. I'm also, speaking of characters, I'm also super fond of the fact that they have very, very strong female characters. I love shows with strong female protagonists. They've got Susie, in the, who's played by Alex Bornstein, who's uh, Midge's really tough and hilarious personal manager, and she's one of my favorites. And their friendship is unlikely, but it's also very relatable. So I hope you'll check it out and consider it marvelous in all categories. Hello and welcome back to Chasing Emmy. We are digging into the supporting actress in a drama category. And here's the rules for this segment. Um, we each go around the table and pick one person who we want, wish, dream will be nominated. By the time we go around the table twice, we'll have six nominees. Then we start to horse trade a bit until we get to our final list of six. So Kristen, I'm going to go with you first. Who is your first draft pick for Best Supporting Actress in a Drama? I got to go with Anne Dowd as Aunt Lydia on The Handmaid's Tale. She is as intimidating and amazing as ever in season two and we're also starting to see a little bit of a hint of a of humanity in her i'm really hoping that this season uh will give us a an aunt lydia flashback episode we haven't seen it yet anyway and Dowd, she's a favorite obviously she won last year i really think uh she deserves another nomination Kristen, is it just because you want to hear and Dowd say hulu again Hulu. I would love to hear that. She is a delight. I met her once last year at uh, a, hu a Hulu party, and uh, she was lovely. So I just want all good things to happen to her. To her, but not her character, Aunt Lydia, just to be clear. No, Aunt Lydia's mean. Lynette, your call. I'm going to go with Lena Headey again. Uh, I, I feel like this is, could this be the season that she wins? I think this will be a great category, uh, but I, I definitely want to see her nominated again. You know what? And I want to see her win, too. I mean, I think we obviously – there's still one more chance because the, the next – the final season isn't airing until 2050. But I, I, I feel like this last year was a great one. I, I'd love to see her get the nod. Okay, my turn, and I'm going to go with Alexis Bledel from Handmaid's Tale, who I think is terrific and unfortunately had to go – what I believe is the only on-screen clitorectomy on television. I know that was season one. I know, bad word. Kristen's shaking her head at me. Horrifying. Anyway, the depths that she infuses with this character are stunning. And she, and it's such a turn, it's such a 180 from what she did with Rory on Gilmore Girls. And I think the range is really impressive. The character's backstory is heartbreaking. I would definitely say that she's going to get in. Kristen, all you. All me. All right. I'm going to go with uh, Tandy Newton. Once again, for Westworld, she uh, is fantastic in season two. Maeve is basically the boss robot now. She and uh, Dolores are sort of leaders of their own little factions of rebellion. And she does such a great job. At, she's funny. She has such emotional moments. Uh, she does action and she's scary. Uh, she really does it all. And she does it in such a a non-showy way and I, I think she'll get recognized again. My next pick and I'm going to go out on a limb here I'm going to declare her a nominee and the winner. This is another one uh, another actress who I think is an, uh, an Academy darling. Uh, I think she can beat Anne Dowd and that's Margot Martindale from The Americans. Uh, I mean I am completely in love with her just because of the work that she's done for good, uh, The Good Wife and now The Good Fight uh, but she's just a force on The Americans and I just... 
I got I got nothing but nothing but love. Linda, I think she's great on The Americans too. I'm not sure if it's her best role ever, and I'm wondering if that would be one where they give her the award as sort of like not a lifetime achievement award, but as a cumulative reward. Correct. I completely believe that that kind of stuff happens. She's outstanding. I completely agree. All right. My final one, and we talked about her earlier, is Chrissy Metz on This Is Us. And the show tugs at America's heartstrings. As Kate, she tugs at America's heartstrings. She had a really, really, really uh, wonderful storyline this year with her engagement and eventual marriage with Toby. And I'd like to see good things happen to her. I think it's a great Cinderella story. So here's a list of choices. We've got Tandy Newton from Westworld. Anne Dowd from Handmaid's Tale, Chrissy Metz from This Is Us, Lena Headey from Game of Thrones, Alexis Bledel from Handmaid's Tale, and Margot Martindale from The Americans. And we're going to get to our Let Us Plead Fours in just a minute, but how does that look to you, Kristen, as a list of nominees? Look, this is going to make everyone angry, and I apologize, but I am sorry, not sorry. I think we need to get rid of Alexis Bledel and put Millie Bobby Brown in there for Stranger Things. And I'm only saying this because maybe I was recently watching um, reruns of the Gilmore Girls and maybe it was the season where Rory was in the pool house and maybe I was like, oh my God, I hate Rory so much. And maybe that's clouded my judgment. Yeah, it completely clouded your judgment. There's no freaking way. I'm not moving her. I don't think she should be moved. I don't... I, I just, I, I just don't feel like the second season of Stranger Things was as strong, and I just can't. I mean, maybe she gets the nominee, the nomination too, because of her age and because of how much she carries on that show. But but Alexis Henry, I'm the tiebreaking vote here, and I'm going with Lynette. I agree. Alexis Bledel was my pick, and I'm going to stick with it, Kristen. I'm sorry. Uh, I can live with it. All right, Lynette. Any other changes you want to make to this list? Or are we locking it in? No, I think this is this is a great category, and I, and I think it's great too because we see it across cable broadcast and streaming this is awesome all right now we come to the part of the show called let us plead for and i've got a whole bunch in this category so i'm thinking i'm gonna go last Kristen, i'm gonna let you go first who is your let us plead for mine is susan kalechi watson who plays beth on this is us and Sterling K. Brown gets all the attention and awards love as Randall, and he's great. But one of the many reasons we love Randall is because he and Beth are so great together. And Beth is total wife goals. Like, she's funny. She's supportive. She's no nonsense. She doesn't take anyone's crap. She's a great mom. And I, so much of that is due to Watson's performance, and I would love to see her get recognized. Yeah, the rapport the two of them have together, and they they, they know it, that the, the chemistry is so great, but they just, they got the timing down when they just have the little funny moments. It's great between them. All right, Lynette, who's your let me plead for? Mine is for Chris Jumbo on The Good Fight. I, she's another one of those secret Brits that we love to write about now at EW. Uh, and she was a carryover character from The Good Wife, just like Christine Baranski's Diane Lockhart. Uh, but her role as Luca Quinn is just as formidable. You know, there's so many great people in this ensemble, and it's truly an embarrassment of riches for the creators who are Michelle and Robert King. But, you know, you can't honor them all. But honestly, if I were up Shit Creek, I would want Luca as my attorney. All right. As I mentioned, I've got three let me plead for us. And I'm sorry, I couldn't narrow this down because there's so many great women that could be in this category. First is the woman we're going to be talking to later in the show, Constance Zimmer, who plays Quinn on Unreal. The season just wrapped. Constance does such an amazing job of infusing a really, really horrible character with humanity and likability and 
depth. And I'm just so impressed with how she's how she's managed to do that over three seasons and successfully and makes you root for this character that in all ways, shapes and forms you shouldn't be rooting for. The second one is just a heartfelt favorite of mine, and that's Bellamy Young, who plays Melly Grant on Scandal. She's been overlooked by the Academy all seven seasons, which is just ludicrous to me because she was such the heart of that show and was doing such incredible work. And Melly went through such a range of emotions from like smelly Melly to the time when she lost her son because he was shot and like went through this deep depression to becoming the president of the United States to when she was a spurned first lady. Like I adore her and think that she made it look easy and it's not easy and she's done such a great job. I know that shows aren't recognized in their final season, but if it was the Henry Goldblatt Emmy Awards, we'd be giving it to Bellamy Young. And then lastly, we talked about Kush Jumbo on The Good Fight. I'd also want to nominate Audra McDonald, who plays Liz Reddick on The Good Fight. She's a new addition this season. She's gone toe-to-toe with Christine Baranski's Diane Lockhart. And like, if you're going to give a foil to Diane Lockhart and Christine Baranski, like, who do you give it to? besides Audra McDonald, who is just so strong and amazing and bold and terrific. And watching them in scenes together has been a, such a treat. I feel like she is a real possibility for a nomination. Out of all of our secret picks, I mean, I feel like she could come through. I mean, what do you think? This list is really, really strong. I don't know who I'd boot off of it. Getting in voters' minds, I'm not sure who I would boot off of this to bring her on, but God, she deserves it. Kristen, any final thoughts on those Let Me Plead for? I mean, it really is a jam-packed category, uh, and it's hard because especially like these shows like The Good Fight or This Is Us, they're such incredible ensembles, and only part of them can kind of get recognized realistically. So until they expand these categories to have you know, 15 nominations each, we're going to, it's always going to feel like somebody's losing out and not being recognized. I mean, there's definitely a couple here that you know for a fact they're going to get nominations. And Dowd, you know for a fact it's going to happen. Chrissy Metz, I feel pretty positive that that's going to happen. Um, uh, the rest of them... And Lita Hetty also is, uh, there's going to be Game of Thrones nominations, there's no doubt. Right, right. But you just ne- you never know. And it, you try to predict these things. You, it's just, it's so hard to... Uh, to, you know, to get a read from the voters. And the other thing you got to take into consideration, too, and if folks don't know about it, it really comes down to a popularity contest when you put together these ballots. You know, people can go in and submit names uh, and, and a lot of times they're just people they've heard of. They can't, no one can get through all these shows and pick a name. Uh, t- t- for a nomination. And so, so much of it comes from Buzz, too. I agree. And also comes from the most recent stuff is the most familiar. For example, Uzo Aduba from Orange is the New Black, she's been a perennial nominee. We didn't even talk about her. I She's eligible to be nominated this year, but I don't think she's going to be nominated because the, the season that she'd be nominated for came out in June of 2017. And like, who remembers that far back with Orange is the New Black? Right, right. Sometimes I want to give us credit for putting names out there and putting it out in the ether so the the voters pay attention. And then I notice that no one gives any love to the good fight to Christine Baranski, so then maybe they're not listening to us. So I I don't know. But I loved Kristen's pick of Susan Kelechi Watson on This Is Us Too, who's someone who's done great work. But then again, the show's been off the air since March too, so will they think of her when they think of the show? Yeah, I really hope that NBC gives her as much attention as they can. I mean, obviously they all have to spend money on these four-year considerations ads and the pushes and everything. And with a cast like that, you want to keep everybody happy and and make sure you're lavishing attention on all of them. I hope that uh, 
that she gets at least some time in the spotlight during this eligibility period. Maybe you should hire one of those planes, Kristen, and get a sign and fly it over Hollywood. Like Big Brother, you know, like when they fly behind the Big Brother house and it's like a banner. They'll be like, don't forget Beth. Hashtag don't forget Beth. I knew you two would find a way to work Big Brother into this conversation. Always, always. Up next, I'm super excited to be talking to Constance Zimmer, who plays Quinn on the great Lifetime show Unreal. So stay tuned for that conversation. Welcome back to Chasing Emmy. I am Henry Goldblatt, and I am thrilled to have our special guest for this week here, Constance Zimmer, who plays Quinn on Unreal. And for those of you who haven't checked out Unreal yet, I highly, highly recommend it. It's a terrific, fictional, behind-the-scenes look at the activity of a dating reality show. And Constance plays Quinn, who is the executive producer and head honcho of the show, and is a sight to behold. And Constance, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. It must be a challenge to infuse what's supposed to be a quote-unquote villain on the show with such humanity, but you do such a good job with that. Will you tell us a little bit about how you sort of strike that balance in infusing Quinn with some of these likable characteristics? And in many other shows, she'd just be sort of a flat-out sort of HBIC. (laughs) Um, Well, uh, you know, I would say that it's definitely not something that I can figure out until I'm actually... Doing it, I think that what I've learned over the years, because I've been lucky enough to play a lot of these very strong, opinionated type characters, is that because I am innately not like that in real life, is something that I think lies underneath. You know, like what people have told me is that you can tell in my eyes that I'm, I have, uh, you know, more going on than what is just on the surface of what makes Quinn the crazy, unfiltered, a little inappropriate type character. And so I think what I just try and do is make sure that I'm always holding on to that and letting a little bit of that always lie there. Uh, Even though it might be dormant, it is there. And it's why I think it was also important for me that we showed times when Quinn could be vulnerable and could be sensitive and you would see her armor kind of break off of her. And so I think with that and the fact that the audience has been able to see her in that light, I mean, because for me, the, the first year was really the hardest year for me because I didn't know if, if she did that, have that within her that people were going to be able to see so the first season, I think for me, I was just keeping my fingers crossed and praying that people were going to not hate me because I had the same fear. It's like, how do you play this character? How do you play this character and make sure that everybody doesn't hate her? And so I have to say it's, it's, it's something that I work on every episode is a different approach. And uh, there's, there's, you know, there's not like one easy answer about, how it seeps in, uh, you know, in one scene, but doesn't in another, because I'm constantly working on it. And just, I think overall, when I relieved myself of the pressure of trying to make her likable and instead make her uh, relatable, that allowed me to let her be, you know, and as long as it was grounded and and set in, you know, a space of where what she was doing she felt was always right, 
then I was hoping people, you know, couldn't fault her for that. Oh, I think you did a great job with that. Do you have any rituals in terms of how you get into character? Is it a question of when you start putting on the wardrobe, you start channeling Quinn? Or is, is it becoming a little more second nature now that you're three seasons in? <laughs> you know, it, it, it definitely never feels second nature. It definitely is still, I can't, I can't, like, I can't even rehearse. Because unless I am in the shoes and the outfits and the makeup, and then it is a complete package. And then I'm able to be as vicious as I can be. Like, I can't even rehearse being vicious because I have to just go for it when they say action, because then I won't question it. And, and you know, and then whenever they say cut, I'm always apologizing. And so there is always, there is still that imbalance that I I can't pretend to be her. I just have to be her. And the only time I can be her is actually when I am fully in the costume, in the makeup, and I have no other choice. You bring up the costumes and the makeup that it was so it was the, the clothing is just beautiful on the show. Do you have a favorite outfit or look over the past season? Yeah, I mean I I have to say I'm very partial because I I don't I, it's funny I don't know if one's my favorite because they're all so specific to what we think Quinn is going through per episode. It's kind of how we base the clothes, like how tight they need to be, how fitted they should be. Is it pants or is it a skirt or is it a dress? And it's all very methodically kind of thought out, which is what I really appreciate because it means it's not just like, oh, just throw one of these on. Like we've actually really plotted it out and made sure that it was just as much of the storyline, the clothing, which I've never had a character like that before. So that's definitely a fun element and which makes it kind of hard to pick a favorite um, per se. Because some of those, I have to tell you, some of those dresses are not comfortable. They look amazing on camera, but they are not comfortable. A lot of times I'll be like, oh, I hate this dress. I hate this dress. And then I'll see it on the show and I'll go, oh, that actually looked really good. <laughs> you looked gorgeous in the dress that you were wearing in the final gala. I believe it was a, it was a gold, gold one. Oh, it's, it's white. It was white with the whole back was beaded. It was like a see-through beaded back. Yes. Yeah. That's a very funny story, too. I did not want to wear that dress. I was not a fan of it. I didn't like that it was white and that it was showed so much of my figure. And I was very much coerced into wearing that dress. And that's, again, one of those things where I, then I see it on film and I go, oh, OK, I get it. I get it. It's just not what I would have gone for. Uh, <laughs> So I like it when people, when, you know, a lot of things they do with me on the show is they force me out of my comfort zone. So I appreciate that. Uh, well, you looked great and you looked beautiful in it. So um, it, it worked and it worked so well with the scene. So season three just wrapped. Do you have a favorite scene or plot line from this past season? Something that resonated with you? I did like season three is there's a scene where I'm a little drunk and Gary comes in and I'm trying, he's like, you have to stop this. And this is getting out of hand. And I'm like, no, no, wait for it. It's going to get better. Just wait for it. And how we're all like in the control room waiting, you know, hoping that somebody's not going to kill each other, but just keeping it rolling the cameras because it's good television. And, and Quinn just kind of flying by the seat of her pants, 
knowing that there's going to be like a Cinderella moment where he's going to sweep her off her feet and take her away from the fighting. And I loved shooting that scene because it was when Quinn is keeping everybody on edge and she's also on edge going, this better work, this better work, this better work. But you never see her let that down. She just knows that this is the way it's going to be. And I promise it's going to work. And I love those because those are scenes where Quinn's just really controlling every single part of the show from, you know, behind the scenes to what's happening on camera. That I like shooting that stuff. That's always really fun for me to do because I can have fun with it and I can be super aggressive and confident (laughs) and not apologize for it which is really fun. The fun, one of the most fun parts of playing Quinn. And I would say, yeah, I mean, the thing in the bar when I meet Fiona, when I see her for the first time, that was fun because it took me out of the mansion and it took me into a club and, you know, I got to wear like a little leather dress and I got to dance and yeah, that was kind of a fun thing to kind of get her out of, you know, her cave of where she is all the time. There was a Me Too storyline in season three that was written far before the movement took off. And I was wondering what it was like for for you to watch it um, on screen in the environment that we're in now. I have to say it was pretty empowering to know that our writers, our creators, weren't afraid to tell this story before it was like, the stories that everybody was telling and realizing how much it has come into the forefront now and then watching it and remembering when we shot it, we all were like, wow, this is, this is kind of a big thing that we're doing. I wonder if people are going to believe it. And now being able to watch it and know that people not only believe it, but that people have seen it and it's happening and it's continuing to happen. So I'm constantly amazed at how, our writers aren't afraid to kind of take these big swings and it's okay if they get criticized for it because this is the platform. We have such an incredible platform to be a show within a show within a show. Uh, We can tell so many stories through that. And that is what I was really proud of all of us for that. We were doing it before it was, you know, something that everybody was, doing was it was really prescient on their part and really the storyline was really really well done for those of you who haven't seen it yet i highly recommend watching the season it's great you mentioned that with the writers how much back and forth is there between the actors and the writers at this point especially now that you're four seasons in i have to say i think since season two the writers you know the showrunners creators have been incredibly collaborative with us and asking us for our input and our advice and allowing us to say, you know, I don't really think that my character would do this. So, yes, they're incredibly collaborative with us. They allow us to, after table reads, we um, clear the room and Shiri and I get to sit with them and talk about lines that maybe we don't agree with or discuss flushing out certain characters and certain ideas in different ways. And together we form it and make it feel like it's all coming from the same voice. Right. So it's definitely, I've never had the opportunity to do that on, on any other show I've been on. And it's been incredibly helpful so that when we show up on the set, 
there's nobody saying, I don't think we should do this or this is wrong or this doesn't make sense. And they've been incredibly gracious with us for that because, you know, I can imagine that's kind of a hard thing to do to just have, you know, okay, actors now give us your take. But they really treated us like producers, even though we weren't producers. And they really listened to our notes and they, we really were able to hash stuff out and make things that we didn't understand. They helped us understand it too. And like how playing it one way in this section would help us because in five episodes later, it would end up playing out again, you know, giving us that kind of awareness of where we need to be in this episode, because then in seven episodes later, we will be at a different juncture. You mentioned that you just finished filming season four. Are there any clues that you can give fans? Clues? Well, I can give you, I think I can give you a lot. I mean, you guys know that it's this, it's all stars now. I don't know if you know that or not, but we're bringing, you know, we're bringing back uh, favorites from season one and uh, from season three, there will be people coming back. And then we've added new characters that are fan favorites from, you know, other seasons, but of course they are created. But the difference of this season is now you have couples competing. You don't have just one single, you know, one single person with 25 contestants. And you're also throwing in the dynamic that they've all been here before. So there's a lot of drama within like them believing that they know how the game is played. And so that was really fun. You couldn't, we had to find new ways to manipulate them, (laughs) which is always a fun kind of challenge for Quinn and Rachel to figure out different ways to manipulate people. And, you know, we come back in season four, Quinn and Rachel are at a completely different place coming back at the beginning of season four. They're almost unrecognizable. And I mean that kind of mentally and physically. They're both coming at this fourth season from entirely new and different points of view because they feel like, how they've been doing it in the past might have not been working. So let's go at it from a different angle. And then, of course, that causes all a whole new set of issues that are much, much greater than I think either of them had anticipated. It's a pretty dramatic and controversial season. I think people, the fans are are not going to be, they're not going to know what's going to, what hits them. I mean, kind of from the second episode in, it's pretty crazy. Oh, it looks like we may see Rachel on camera. No, Rachel. No, she's not on camera, but her, her mental state is, is very questionable. Even though her mental state is always questionable on the show, this is just a different kind of psychological torture that she has kind of put upon herself and then uh, and is doing it to everybody else without even realizing it i think she says it in the trailer actually i am everlasting that statement alone should make people terrified because that's a statement you don't want coming out of rachel's mouth uh constance last question for you what are you binging right now what shows you enjoying on tv i'm a little late but i just binged the crown i binged till the end of the effing world on Netflix. I don't know if you've seen it. Oh, 
God, I loved it so much. I wanted more episodes. It was way too short. And uh, let's see. What else did I recently do? Mindhunter. Now I've been kind of going back and I'm binging old shows because I'm, I'm in the process of doing research for some television shows that I want to kind of produce and uh, be a part of. So I'm, I'm rewatching and binging shows like Sopranos and Breaking Bad and all of that. So that's really fun to kind of go back and now be able to binge them and watch them all at once is really fun. Completely. And I would highly recommend for anyone who um, hasn't seen Unreal yet, it's a terrific binge and you should be devouring, devouring the three seasons immediately. And Constance, you are just terrific as Quinn. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Oh, I so, so appreciate you having me. I, I really, I love how much our show and these characters have really kind of gotten under people's skin. <laughs> And um, it just makes me really happy. So I thank you so, so very much. Well, that's because of your terrific performance. So thank you so much for joining us. And we will see you next week. Today's podcast was brought to you by the Prime Original Series, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, from executive producers Amy Sherman Palladino and Daniel Palladino. Starring Rachel Brosnahan, Alex Bornstein, and Tony Shalhoub, the show won two Golden Globes, including Best TV Comedy Series and Best Actress in a TV Comedy Series. Consider it marvelous in all categories.